1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson and I'm Holly Fry. Before we jump into today's show, we will announce one more quick time since I think this is the last, our last opportunity to do it. Uh, Holly and I will be at Salt Lake Comic Con Fan once again. March 17th and 18th, 2017. We will be doing some appearances both of those days. So if you were in the area, uh, that is coming right up. Uh, and today's podcast is one we've gotten a lot of requests for, including from Laura Mar, Doug, John, Katrina, Alyssa, Amy, Nicole, Paige, Jaina, Casey, Randy, and Adrian. Those are just the ones that came in via email since 2015. Because <laughs> in 2015, our email address changed. And now we have also moved on to a different email platform, Platform, so, like, trying to look for old stuff is really hard. Uh, it is the New London School Explosion, which happened on March 18th, 1937, so its 80th uh, anniversary is coming up. So if you're wondering, how can I get the topic that so many people have requested moved to the top of the pile? The answer is, have it have a milestone anniversary coming up. <laughs> That seems to be the trend lately uh this was one of the worst disasters in texas history it was the worst school disaster in the united states history it was a horrific tragedy that stemmed from a number of small decisions and moments and changing any of them would have prevented or mitigated the whole thing or in some cases changed it to a way that was also bad and maybe even worse uh we, we recently did a show on, on the, um, the temple bombing in Atlanta and we offered some reassurance at the beginning that that seems like from the title that it's, it's going to be a dreadfully tragic show. We cannot offer that reassurance today.
1: Yeah. In that case, the show sounded really terrible and in the end was really quite a positive message. And there was not a lot of, of, even though there was a bombing involved, there was not, uh, there were no fatalities or casualties of any kind. You're not in for the same kind of happy ending on this one. No, School
0: explosion, it's as bad as you think.
1: Yeah. So for background, New London is in Rusk County in East Texas, and it was originally known as just London. From 1855 until about 1930, its primary industry was agriculture, with the two largest crops being corn and cotton, followed by a variety of food crops. The Civil War had devastated this industry, which had relied heavily on enslaved labor, and the area's economy had only really started to recover after the turn of the 20th century. But even then, the turnaround had continued to be quite slow. And that slow recovery, of course, started to falter with the onset of the Great
0: Depression. But in the autumn of 1930, Columbus Marion Joyner struck oil in Rust County at Discovery Well Daisy Bradford Number no. 3, Other discoveries of oil soon followed, which quickly proved to all be part of the East
1: Texas oil field, which was at the time the largest known oil field in the United States. There were a lot of things about Joyner's business practices and his mineral rights schemes that were incredibly shady. He was what's known as a wildcatter. He drilled oil wells in places that oil wasn't known to be in the hopes that he would just luck out and find some. His method was described as being made out of, quote, faith and cuss words, and he wasn't above taking advantage of other people's equipment and labor to get the job done. In spite of making a fortune in oil, by the time he died in 1947, he was nearly penniless. Regardless of all of that, his discovery earned him the nickname Dad as the father of the nation's then largest oil field.
0: Joyner's discovery of oil meant that London became a boom town. Seemingly overnight, it went from a struggling rural area to one that was still rural, but also incredibly wealthy. Oil wells popped up everywhere, along with refineries, many of them tiny so-called teapot refineries that essentially process the oil in the field rather than shipping the crude oil to a larger facility to be refined.
1: People swarmed into the area looking for work in the rapidly growing oil and gas industries. Within a couple of years, Rusk County's population more than doubled to 65,000 people, and many of the area's property owners became rich when it became clear that there was oil under their land. And there was some strife between the longtime residents and the newcomers, with the locals viewing the people moving to the area for oil jobs as a bad crowd, particularly the ones whose time in town was just temporary.
0: This influx of money and people meant that a wave of new construction swept through the town as well. People built new homes, churches and businesses. Within a year, a new post office was established. And that's actually what necessitated the name change to New London, since it turned out there was already a London post office in operation in Kimball County, uh, also in Texas, obviously. Humble Oil and Refining Company also moved its district headquarters to New London, relocating about a 100 families to the area. And in
1: 1934, New London finished a newly expanded school, which had come with a price tag of about a million dollars. This was an expansive 21-acre campus, which consolidated and absorbed the student populations of other schools in the area. It had an elementary building for grades 1 through 4 and a combined junior-senior high school building that went from grades 5 to 11. The two classroom buildings were about a block apart, and for all grades combined, the school had a capacity of about 1,200 students.
0: The new campus also had a large auditorium, a workshop, a separate gymnasium, and the state's first school football stadium that was equipped with electric lights. In addition to the building itself, the surge in wealth in New London had brought in better pay for the teachers, new instruments for the music classes, and new books and equipment.
1: By 1937, the school's taxable value had soared to roughly $20 million, in part because of the functional oil wells on the school's property. There were more than 10 of them, which brought even more revenue to the school, and it became one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, school district in the United States.
0: Even though it was so wealthy, the school was also looking for ways to save money, both during its construction and during its operation. And a combination of money-saving efforts would ultimately lead to the school's destruction. Also, there's the irony that all this wealth was coming from oil, and a byproduct of that oil ultimately led to the destruction of the school. We'll get into all of this and how it tied together after a quick sponsor break. We know it's a little earlier in the show than we normally do it, but coming up is a bunch of stuff that we would like to keep all together. One of the ways the New London Consolidated School tried to save money was on its natural gas bill, which originally was coming from Union Gas. It cost the school about $300 a month. In 1937, the suggestion came in to cancel the contract with Union Gas and instead tap into the nearby Parade Gasoline Company's Casing Head gas line. Casing Head gas, also sometimes called wet gas, is essentially natural gas that's brought up along with the crude oil. It was considered to be a waste product.
1: Tapping into a casing head gas line to get access to natural gas for free was actually a relatively common practice for people living in areas that were home to the oil and gas industry. And while it wasn't particularly encouraged by the companies in question, in many cases it was tacitly allowed. This to me is one of the most bizarre
0: parts of this story, that it was just a completely commonplace commonplace practice to tap into a residue gas line as though you were stealing cable. Like, <laughs> that's so strange to me. Uh, sources contradict one another about whether New London School did this with or without Parade Gasoline Company's knowledge or permission. It was, however, approved by the school superintendent, William Chesley Shaw, and apparently also the school board. So in January of 1937, plumbers tapped into Parade Gasoline Company's residue line and swapped it out for the Natural Gas Company's line, replacing the natural gas with this residue gas. According to testimony, later given at hearings that followed this uh, explosion, Shaw said, quote, the piping was not a secret at all. We went down and made the connection. It was not buried deep or anything. The United Gas Company knew it positively. We told them.
1: Apparently, when informed that the school was going to tap into the Parade Gasoline Company line, United Gas Company did express that there might be some danger involved. However, the school board interpreted this concern as just trying to retain the school's business and their $300 a month in gas expenditures. Adding to the school board's perception that this would be perfectly safe was the fact that so many other people were tapping into the residue line. This same thing was being done in homes all over the area, and everyone was fine.
0: Still baffling. This change from an official natural gas supplier to tapping into a residue line to get waste gas for free was only part of the problem, though, And the original building plan, New London Consolidated School was supposed to be heated by one central boiler. Instead, to cut costs, the central boiler was replaced with a collection of 72 individual gas-powered radiators, which was apparently uh, kind of counterintuitively less expensive. Both the school board and the contractor believed these individual radiators would be safe, but having this many individual radiators, all of them run off of gas, did offer far more
1: opportunities for leaks to develop in all the interior gas lines. And somewhere in this system, there was at least one leak. Since this gas in its natural state is colorless and odorless, no one knew of the danger that was developing. Even when students started to complain of headaches and burning eyes, no one suspected that anything was wrong at the school. Spirits were pretty high at
0: New London School on March 18th of 1937. It was a mild early spring day, and the next day was supposed to be a holiday because there was going to be a district-wide academic and athletic competition that would take place in Henderson, which was the county seat.
1: Sources vary a little bit about exactly what time the explosion happened, but it was less than 15 minutes before the end of the school day for the middle and high school students. The elementary classes had already been dismissed, and most of the students from grades one to four were already on their way home. Yeah, 3.17
0: p.m. is cited a lot, but then there are other uh, eyewitness accounts and scheduling things that make it seem like closer to uh, 3.20 or 315. It's, it's a little bit hazy. Even though the source of the explosion is difficult to conclusively pinpoint, there were survivors who were in the school's machine shop that day that reported seeing sparks fly from a sanding machine when the teacher, T.R. Butler, turned it on. It might have been this. It might have been some other spark. Literally any spark could have set it off. But something ignited the gas that had been silently accumulating in the school's lower levels.
1: According to eyewitnesses, the walls of the middle and high school building blew outward, and the roof was literally lifted off the structure. When it came back down, the parts of the building still standing were crushed. People as far as 40 miles away reported feeling the blast, and the force was so great that a two-ton slab of concrete was thrown more than 200 feet, crushing a car that it landed on.
0: At least 298 people were killed, most of them students and most of them instantly. 14 of those killed were teachers or staff and four were visitors to the campus. And it's possible that that count is a little lower than reality. The labor force in the oil fields tended to be somewhat transitory and records about who is where weren't always complete.
1: The adults at a PTA meeting that was being held in the gymnasium heard and felt the explosion and rushed to the scene to find the middle and high school building leveled. Soon help began to pour in from all around the area, particularly laborers from the neighboring oil fields. Clearing the debris and looking for survivors became an immediate and largely
0: manual process. About 1,500 oil workers manually removed building materials, forming a bucket brigade-style line to move peach baskets full of rubble and smaller debris out of the field.
1: Virtually every nearby building became either a field hospital or a morgue. There were not nearly enough hearses or ambulances, so delivery trucks, pickup trucks, and trucks that typically carried livestock had to be used for the purpose. Stocks of bandages and medicines were depleted at all of the area's pharmacies and doctor's offices. A new hospital that was scheduled to open the next day in the neighboring town of Tyler had to open immediately when word spread about the disaster.
0: A radio station that opened just the day before broadcast both calls for help and offers of assistance. There were notes like, H.T. Leverett near Overton opens his home for any use whatsoever, To the parents of three Alexander children, they are safe. And attention, undertakers. Edgeworth Decorating Company Longview has men and materials ready to go to work on coffins.
1: Soon, the surrounding roads were clogged with people trying to come in to help and trying to transport injured students and teachers to safety, so much so that it became a total logjam. Governor James Allred declared martial law, which remained in effect until March 22nd. He sent in the Texas Rangers and the Highway Patrol to steer traffic and coordinate the efforts. Soon, they were joined by the National Guard, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, the Boy Scouts, and many other organizations. A group of about 30 doctors and 100 nurses traveled in from Dallas to help. As the
0: sun set and it started to rain, rescuers set up floodlights and they continued to work through the night. 17 hours after the initial explosion, the rubble and the victims had all been removed. But because there were so many fatalities spread out among so many locations, it took a lot of families days to find their children and loved ones. There's also uh, Texas Monthly did an article on one of the more recent milestone anniversaries where they talked to a lot of survivors, and a lot of the eyewitness accounts are horrifyingly grisly. We're not going to repeat all of that here, but that article will be in the show notes for folks who are interested.
1: Because of the nature of the blast and the injuries, making accurate identifications was also incredibly difficult. Parents matched swatches of fabric from clothes that they'd made for their children or noticed details like fingernails that had been colored on with crayon.
0: There were also definitely cases of mistaken identity and people who were uh, mistakenly reported As either safe or killed that turned out later not to be true. The whole, uh, the whole thing was incredibly difficult and later became, uh, one of the, one of the incidents that people used, uh, as, um, support for the idea that all children should be fingerprinted and have their fingerprints stored with law enforcement in case something horrible like this happens. This disaster quickly became a national news story. Walter Cronkite, who was then only 22, covered it as his first major assignment for United Press International, later saying, quote, I did nothing in my studies nor in my life to prepare me for a story of the magnitude of that New London tragedy, nor has any, sort, any story since that awful
1: day equaled it. Reporter Felix McKnight, who is 26, of Dallas, began his first report, Today a Generation Died. We will talk about the aftermath of this explosion uh, and some of the
0: reforms that it led to after another quick sponsor break. A lot of the same laborers who had helped remove debris after the New London School explosion also dug graves for the victims. There were no mass burials, but there were so many funerals to conduct that a lot of them were held in groups, some of them as many as 12 funerals at one time. Most of the victims, although definitely not all, were buried at nearby Pleasant Hill Cemetery, Texas funeral directors sent 25 embalmers to New London to help with the preparations.
1: Parents and teachers at other schools in the area and in the rest of the nation were terrified that something similar could happen anywhere that natural gas was being used as fuel. Officials scrambled to test for leaks and drop safety plans. An inquiry
0: began almost immediately, and it ran for three days. And although it ruled that the school board and superintendent had not exercised good judgment, the report to the governor was that it did not warrant prosecution. Superintendent Shaw testified that he was, quote, partially responsible for the decision to tap into the residue gas line. On the stand, he was obviously both guilt-stricken and grief-stricken because both his son and his niece had died in the explosion that had also killed so, so many other people.
1: A professor of chemical engineering at the University of Texas gave expert testimony that the culprit was gas that had pooled under the floor of the school's lower level. That replaced an
0: earlier theory that it had seeped into hollow walls and kind of collected there. Gordon C. Hawley of the State Fire Insurance Company testified that regulatory measures were needed to prevent a similar tragedy from occurring in the future, including better boiler safety codes and better building exit codes. He also recommended adding a malodorant to gas lines, which would have made it obvious that gas was leaking into the building. He was quoted as saying, I don't want to appear heroic, but we've got
1: to do something about this. The Texas state legislature convened an emergency session to draft legislation to require inspections of gas connections and the addition of a recognizable odor to gas supplies. Other states followed and a federal law. More than 70 lawsuits were
0: filed in the aftermath of the explosion, although few of them ever actually got to trial, and none of them ended with any sort of payout or conviction. There were actually calls to lynch Superintendent Shaw over his role in this disaster. He wound up immediately. Uh, he wound up eventually resigning and moving out of the area.
1: Only about 130 students who were in the building at the time escaped without serious injury. Classes resumed 10 days later in portable and temporary structures and in the undamaged parts of campus. So many people had been killed that some students only learned that people they knew had died during roll call. But prom and commencement did take place as planned that spring. In
0: 1939, a memorial monument was unveiled near the site of the explosion. It's a cenotaph, which is a tomb-like structure that doesn't contain actual remains, carved from a block of Texas granite on two massive pillars. The upper portion bears a life-size relief carving of students and teachers. A museum was also founded in a former soda shop across the street from the monument
1: in 1992. For decades, the explosion was little talked about in New London, until a reunion was held in 1977. Then, many of those who had survived as children talked about being beset with guilt over having lived. Some described receiving death threats from the grief-stricken parents of friends who had died. It was obvious that the entire community was just absolutely,
0: unsurprisingly, completely devastated. Compounding this grief and guilt was the fact that the PTA meeting that had been held in the school's gymnasium was normally held in the auditorium. And when it was held in the auditorium, school was dismissed early to accommodate it. And if that had been the case, it would have been a completely different tragedy, with most of the students spared, but many of their teachers and parents being killed when the auditorium was destroyed.
1: Today, mercaptan is used in natural gas in the United States, which is harmless, but it gives it a noticeable and unpleasant odor.
0: Yeah, the idea of adding a bad-smelling substance to natural gas existed prior to this. But it was not widely adopted in the United States, but after this tragedy, which was obviously horrific, um, even, even though it sort of, it, in a lot of ways disappeared from the national, the national consciousness in the decades that have passed since then, uh, in a lot of places, um, it had a, a immediate change in the requirement for, uh, natural gas to be something that you could easily smell so you could tell if there was a leak so that it wouldn't so that this exact thing uh, would not happen again. One of the pieces that I read about this kind of tried to theorize about why something that was such a huge national news story at the time, um, today, a lot of people have never heard of uh, apart from the many, many people who emailed us uh, to suggest that we do this as an episode. Um, and one of the theories was that it was not long before um, the Hindenburg disaster so perhaps the Hindenburg combined with the fact that so many people who survived or, uh, who parents who had lost their children were just so reluctant to talk about it for so many years after it actually happened. Uh, before we move into some listener mail. Yeah. It is still March. Yeah. We're going to. Talk a little bit about podcasts. Obviously, you like podcasts. If you're listening to ours, maybe this is your first podcast you've ever listened to. <laughs> you're still trying to decide if it's for you. Uh, but during March, podcasts are recommending other podcasts. And you can get on this, too, with the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D. If you go to Twitter, search for that, you will find folks talking about the podcast that they recommend. One of my favorite podcasts has nothing to do. This has nothing to do with history at all, most of the time. Uh, it is Judge John Hodgman, <laughs> in which people bring their disputes to the Court of Fake Internet Justice. And and John Hodgman uh, rules in one of the party's favors uh, on, on the subject of their dispute. Some of the favorites from way, way back in the day are whether a machine gun is a robot, <laughs> um, whether someone can have a sadness tree in their home during the season of Advent one of the more recent ones was whether this guy's really nasty old bathrobe that he had had for, for so long was something he could continue to have and wear or whether he needed to get a new one. So a lot of these seem like very ordinary, maybe even petty disputes among people. Uh, but a lot of times the discussion turns out to be very funny and very insightful into being a human being on earth. Uh, and the same is true for the, the uh, judgments that come at the end. They often are also, um, Very thoughtful and poignant. (laughs) Uh, I like listening to it a whole lot. So a tripod, hashtag tripod for lots of podcast recommendations this month.
1: Do you also have some listener mail?
0: I do. This is another listener mail about Ed Roberts and it's from Nellie and Nellie says, Hi Holly and Tracy, I've been listening to your podcast for almost a year and I am so glad I found you two. You make my commute to work so much more enjoyable and I love the range and inclusivity of your topics. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your wonderful podcast on Ed Roberts. I worked at a center for independent living for two years I was planning to email you to suggest him as a podcast subject on his birthday. I was pleasantly surprised to see on your Facebook page that it was already in the works while working at the center for independent living. I was a coordinator for our youth program. Our main goal was to help young people with disabilities transition from high school to college work or independent living in the community Part of my job involved going into local high school special education classes as a guest speaker to talk about the history of disability rights in America. We always told the story of Ed Roberts, as many of the challenges he faced as a transitioning young adult are things that my students and clients were also facing, such as obtaining accommodations for school or figuring out how to live independently from their parents. It always amazed me how these students with disabilities knew little to nothing about the history of disability rights. Often when we started our lesson, we would ask students, who has heard of the civil rights movement? Who has heard of the women's rights movement? Ultimately, everyone would raise their hand. Once we said, who has heard of the disability rights movement? Almost no one would raise their hand. A colleague of mine pointed out to the class once that if they open their history books, it's very unlikely that this history or Ed Roberts story would ever be included in its text. Ed Roberts' legacy and the work of countless other disability rights advocates are truly missed in history class all the time. It's especially detrimental for all the young people with disabilities who are missing out on an empowering part of their own history. I wanted to share a fun story about Ed, which you may have come across in your research. You mentioned that he was in the hospital. The doctor had told Ed's mother that she should hope that he would die as he would be, quote, no more than a vegetable. Years later, Ed's response was this. I decided to be an artichoke, a little prickly on the outside, but with a big heart on the inside. You know, the vegetables of the world are uniting and we're not going away. Once again, thank you for your podcast and, more importantly, for making sure the voices of the disability rights movement are being heard. Best wishes, Nellie. Thank you so much, Nellie, for this note. I love the many emails that we have gotten about Ed Roberts. And I also wanted to say we have not read any of these yet. Uh, and I, I'm not quite sure whether we will because a lot of them are are quite personal. We have also had a lot of people write in um with stories about their families related to our episodes on the, the Japanese-American internments during World War II after exec- Executive Order 9066. Uh, we've had a lot of people who have sent in family stories and pictures um and just all kinds of things. A lot of them have been very lovely. And I just wanted to thank everyone who has taken the time to do that. Um as I said, a lot of the stories are are very personal and, and it's clear that even within their families, they have not been talked about a whole lot. Uh so thank you so much for sharing those
1: things with us. I actually when you were discussing how um today's topic Kind of fell aside in terms of historical record. I thought about some of the things that came up when we were doing the executive order 9066 episode because in many cases, so many of those families just did not want to talk about it. And oh, yeah. They kind of, you know, pushed that aside and buried it a little bit. And I have to presume there's some similar psychology in the mix there.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, uh, yours and my father's, uh, both have military service experiences that they have not really talked to us about. Yep. Uh And like, I, I have not really asked my dad. It's this sort of a thing that we have not uh had, had much conversation about. And I, part of me wonders, uh, next time I go home, <clears throat> should I take the tape recorder and <laughs> we'll talk about Vietnam? And then part of me is like, I don't know if I want to pry with that. Right. Uh, Cause I know that was such a difficult time for so many people. So, Thank you again for all the folks that have, uh, shared so many personal stories with us. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're a history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at mist history. Our Tumblr is mist we history.tumblr.com or on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history and on Instagram at mist history. You can come to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com. You'll find all kinds of stuff about petroleum and oil and gas and uh, all the types of fuel that we talked about today, you can come to our website, which is com, where you will find an archive of all the episodes Holly and I have ever done. You will find show notes for the episodes uh, that we have done. And those show notes, uh, starting basically now-ish, are, uh, are now combined with episode pages. So you don't have to look in two different places to find out uh, what sources we talked about. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
2: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game